0: This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit lifevestresults.com to learn more. Worldwide,
1: cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These
0: are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambinder here. I could not be more excited to share this amazing Cardio Nerds Rounds recording. What is Cardio Nerds Rounds, you ask? Well, Cardio Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we get to learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by master educators, Dr. Karin Desai from the University of Maryland and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. Cardio Nerds Rounds are generally held once monthly during the noon hour, Eastern Standard Time, but then are released via podcast like in this episode for your asynchronous medical education pleasure. You can find out more about Cardio Nerds Rounds and register for upcoming events on CardiNerdsRounds.com forward slash rounds. This episode features challenging cases that highlight modern guideline-directed therapy in heart failure with Dr. Randall Starling. Now of note, this Cardio Nerds round was recorded prior to the release of the 2022 HA, ACC, HFSA heart failure guidelines, but the tenets that we learn here remain extremely pertinent. Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, 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 fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeVest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Yvonne Chiveri for their top-notch production skills that make Nerd's Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by nerds without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round. Karn, take it away.
1: I wanna welcome all of you to Cardi Nerds Rounds. My name is Karn Desai, and I am editor of the Cardi Nerds Academy. So Cardi Nerds Rounds, the goal of these sessions is to bring together learners from all levels, all across the world to go through real life cases and learn from world experts. And we truly have a world expert here with us today. And mainly we wanna learn their approach to specific cases that we all see in practice and see how they incorporate the latest evidence into their cases. With that, I'll turn it over to Natalie Stokes.
2: Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, My name's Natalie. I work with Dr. Desai to learn from the experts. We're thrilled today to have our CardioNerds co-host, Dr. Tiffany Dong. She is a second-year chief fellow at Cleveland Clinic. She'll be guiding us through rounds today. So, Tiffany, take it away. Thank you so much, Natalie. I have the pleasure of introducing Dr.
3: Starling, who's going to be our expert discussion today. Dr. Starling is luckily at my home institution, Cleveland Clinic, and he's been here for a while now. He currently is on the editorial board of the Journal of Cardiac Failure, and he has been on the editorial boards of Jack, Jack Heart Failure, and the Heart Failure Review Board as well. He was past a FSA president from 2018 to 2019, and he was head of our heart failure and transplant section from 2003 to 2016. I think most importantly, from a fellow standpoint, he's one of our favorite attendings to work with. He always goes very quickly in our clinic draft when he's available, and we really enjoy learning from him. With that, we're going to start rounding then. We're going to see about two to three patients today. I do want to thank my co-fellow, Dr. Trey Martin, for the first case. He's laid the groundwork for the structure of how we manage these patients. Case one, we're seeing this patient. He's a 63-year-old male in heart failure clinic. He has a known non-estemic cardiomyopathy with an EF of 30%, and he is presenting with worsening shortness of breath. That's progressive over six months first notable when lifting boxes at work, and now he can't climb one to two flights of stairs without getting short of breath. He's actually due for an ICD as primary prevention. With the symptoms, the uh, plan was to get a right heart casperization to optimize him prior to getting his ICD. In terms of past medical history, he does have a mutation associated with dilated cardiomyopathy and a cardiac MRI from the year prior showing biventricular dilatation with a low ejection fraction. In addition, he has a history of AFib with two ablations and also sick sinus syndrome with a dual-chamber pacemaker in place. His family history is notable for a brother who passed away suddenly and a niece with hokum. His social history is non-contributory. He's retired and doesn't use any substances. These are his current medications in clinic. His GDMT regimen includes metoprol, succinate, apelritinone, and lisinopril. He's also on a daily dose of prosamide and difetolide and warfarin for his AFib, as well as the statin. He's ready for a right heart catheterization. These are the labs that we draw in PrEP. I'll turn your attention to his potassium, which is slightly elevated at 5.3 and a creatinine of 1.08, which is his baseline. His CBC is unremarkable. His NT-proBNB is elevated for him at 1,700. These are the echo images we have from right before. So his EF is moderately decreased with a mildly dilated left atrium. And then he does have a little bit of PR around the pacemaker lead on the right image but nothing else significant on this. And then for the moment of truth that we've all been waiting for, so this is his right heart catheterization done through his right IJ, um, and I included his vital here for our understanding. So he has a right atrial pressure of 15, a RV of 52 over 16, PA pressure of 59 over 32 with a mean of 41, and an elevated wedge pressure of 28 with notable V waves of 40. His cardiac output and index by thermo are 4.1 and 1.8, respectively. And his cardiac output and uh, cardiac index by sick are 2.8 and 1.2, respectively. We also noted his TPG of 13, his TVR of 3 woods unit, DPG of 4, and his SVR, which is elevated at 1,990. So you can see that he has five ventricular filling pressures that are elevated, including his wedge, and he has reduced cardiac index both by thermo and fix. So our first question for Dr. Starling is what would you do next? We'd stop the dopia exam. I think we can all agree, but our options are discharge the patient home with a higher dose of oral diuretic, admit the patient for IV diuresis and hold his beta blocker, Admit the patient for diuresis and start an SGL-2 inhibitor and RNA immediately. Admit the patient for milrinone initiation and hold his data blocker. Or admit the patient for uptitration of oral GDMT and IV diuresis. The last option is a, a totally different direction.
4: Tiffany, I have a question. What was this patient's NYHA class and symptom status when he walked in for this? So
3: his NYHA class, had progressed over the past six months to about class three and prior to this he had not had any hospitalization was a pretty functional guy otherwise but did note this marked decline
1: so the majority answer is to admit this patient for up titration of oral sgl2 and rne immediately i think those questions were similar answers but mainly focusing on those two medications So why don't we turn
4: it over to Dr. Starling to hear how he would approach this case. Thank you. You know, I think the way a patient is managed is going to vary depending on where they are. And we're at the Cleveland Clinic, so I'm going to give you what usually happens at the Cleveland Clinic, which may not happen that way at other facilities. And the first comment I'd like to make is the whole issue of Why did this patient even get a right heart cath to begin with? And I'm going to assume that pre-ICD, someone decided that they wanted to make sure that this patient was quote unquote optimized. And number two, as a sidebar, you could make the argument, well, this patient has a longstanding history, but in general, when you're looking at an ICD or a CRT, One of the questions we get asked all the time as a heart failure specialist is, has the patient been optimized? And I think everyone would recognize that this patient has room for improvement, so to speak. The other thing that I kind of do routinely with any heart failure patient, whether they're an inpatient or an outpatient is I kind of run a mental checklist to help me restratify the patient. So this patient has a sodium of 142, normal, a BUN and creatinine that are unremarkable. So right off the bat, if you reflect on the ADHERE registry, which is inpatient, acute decompensated heart failure, you can begin to restratify stratify it. And the ADHERE registry gives you very simple data points to give you an estimate of inpatient mortality. But from many regards, this patient was quote unquote low risk. Now the BNP was 1700, which is certainly not sky high, but in general, we like to see BNPs under a thousand based on what we know from guide HF and other studies. So here's a patient at the Cleveland clinic and the cath lab, somebody rings up the attending cardiologist, and says, hey, the wedge is high, the index is low, boom, they get admitted. That's what happens at the Cleveland Clinic. So once the patient comes in, then what happens next really is a function of the trajectory of the hemodynamics. And again, at our institution, the Cleveland Clinic, more often than not, A patient will get treated like this with sodium nitroprusside and IB diuretics. We're very biased toward a vasodilator regimen and not using an inotrope. So one of the choices was milrinone, which I don't think anybody opted for that. And that's the right answer. That's a good answer. And there was actually a clinical trial that was done called Optine HF a while back, published in JAMA. The, the PI was from Duke, Michael Cuff was his name, C-U-F-F-E, and, and basically the mill known empirically for an acute admission to the hospital failed. Patients had more AFib, et cetera. Once that happened, the inpatient use of inotropes pretty much disappeared on the horizon. So once this patient comes in the hospital, the other pet peeve of mine that any fellow that's ever around it with me knows is that it seems that oftentimes there's a low threshold to stop beta blockers and I'm not sure where this culture came from, but I think what is important to recognize is that 30 years ago, we didn't use beta blockers, so they're relatively new. And when Carvedilol first came along, someone well-known to cardio nerds, Dr. Brenwald, was writing the protocols. And so there was a protocol that said, what do you do with Carvedilol when a patient's admitted to the hospital? And it said, if the patient is decompensated, cut the dose by 50%. Don't ever stop the beta blocker cold turkey. There's this concept of beta blocker withdrawal, which is usually not an issue if the patient's on another neurohormonal antagonist, but it's theoretical. So I think most of the time, well, if a patient's in cardiogenic shock, then you get rid of the beta blocker. But for the routine patient that's admitted, you either leave the beta blocker where it is or you cut the dose while you're optimizing the patient. This patient was on... I believe 50 milligrams twice a day of metoprolol succinate. And the target dose of metoprolol succinate from the MERIT-HF trial, the mean dose was 154 milligrams a day. So most algorithms will say that drug's target dose is between 150 and 200. So at the Cleveland Clinic, patient would be admitted. They'd have the PA catheter in place. This patient has a ton of blood pressure. I think we saw 155 on the systolic. Almost unquestionably, they'd get put on a nitroproside. And I'm sure there would be an active discussion about conversion from lisinopril to ARNI, which would be appropriate. And of course, everyone knows you need to factor in the 36-hour washout when you go from an ACE to Arnie. Then the only other comment has to do with this patient's mutation. So this is a mutation seen commonly in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, 30% of the patients, we weren't told anything about an outflow track gradient or what have you. And it is true that certainly some patients with HCM and there are many variants or non-obstructive. And some patients start off with relatively preserved systolic function that deteriorates over time. Strong family history, history of AFib. So that all sounds pretty believable to me. And for this patient, of course, very important that family members are screened for this mutation as well. Thanks, Dr. Starling. We will turn it back to Tiffany
1: to go through the initial
4: course here for the patient. Tiffany, I didn't mention, but it was on the slide that diltiazim was stopped. It's quite curious to me why this patient was even on diltiazim, whether somebody did that for AFib rate control or this patient had obstruction at some time, what that was all about, but obviously that drug had to go away.
3: Yeah. I I believe digging in the chart, it was initially started for AFib control. And then I think it was kept on doing relatively well until he saw us in clinic. I will say that they did hold his Bicinopril a few days prior to this right heart cast. So on day one, he's admitted to our heart failure ICU with the swan still in place. And then the first column is his mean arterial pressure of 127, and then the elevated five filling pressures, as we mentioned. Here, they start him on hydralazine 25, three times a day, apelrinone 25, daily, and then they diurese him with porosomide IV. They continue his metoprolol fexonate at 50 twice a day. And then day two, you can see his filling pressures are improving with an improved cardiac index. And we did start him on sodium nitroprusside that we quickly titrated to 200 mic a minute. And we are able to start him on a low dose of ARNI, 24 to 26 milligrams twice a day. They increase his hydralazine to 53 times a day. And then on day three, as you can see, his filling pressures continue to improve with a preserved cardiac index of 2.6. And he's weaned off his sodium nitroprusside. He's up-titrated to mid-dose RNA, 49 and 51 twice a day. In addition, and he's kept on his apelrinone, hydralazine, and metoprolol. And then day four, very similar numbers. And he actually gets his Swan removed and it's transferred out to our heart failure uh, floor. On day five, they did stop the hydralazine and they up titrated his apelrinone to 50 milligrams a day. And then day six, he is on full dose of ARNI 97 to 103 milligrams twice a day. So we stopped the dopiazam, we stopped the lysinopril. We started him on r high dose twice a day, and he's on a Pelrono 50 milligrams, so doubled. And then we continued uh, the rest of his medication.
2: So two questions with that is, when do we consider using metoprolol uh, succinate BIV rather than daily? And is there any reason you would switch some run from toprol to coreg on admission?
4: Thank you, Natalie, for those questions, which are very, very common questions. Probably the best answer I can give you is this is dealer's choice. It's the style question. I don't know that there's a tremendous amount of data to guide one. You know, most people like to opine that carvedilol is a more effective quote unquote, antihypertensive because of its alpha effects. And I think in head-to-head comparisons, you can probably substantiate that with some evidence. And I think very commonly, I see amongst my partners, individuals backing away from Corveta low if they're worried about the patient's blood pressure. So in this particular patient's case, depending on his blood pressure, you may or may not have had a bias to use Carvedolol over Metoprolol. There was also a question asked regarding the dosing. So yes, Metoprolol succinate is a once a day drug. Having said that, I think certainly in the setting of AFib and rate control, I have used that drug as frequently as three to four times at doses. Please don't do this, but I've had patients on up to 200 milligrams, three or four times a day, uh, metoprolol succinate in the setting of atrial fibrillation. I I can't give you a number, but my guess is that somewhere between 25 and 40% of heart failure patients may wind up on metoprolol succinate BID. And I think the, the, the gauge for that is. Probably twofold, one, watching the heart rate trends and number two, sometimes patients will say to you, gee, a hundred milligrams of metoprolol. It's hitting me like a sledgehammer. I can't take it. And you can either reduce the dose or you can reduce the dose and increase the frequency so that you get the same total daily dose of a beta blocker. So some patients will tell you they tolerate it better BID. So that's as much as I can tell you about it. The beta blocker, other than to say is one better than the other. Personally, I don't think so. There was a study done, I believe by Milton Packer m- many years ago. The only caveat was it wasn't metoprolol succinate. It was metoprolol tartrate compared to carvedilol. And that was the criticism of the study, which opined in favor of carvedilol. But I think they're interchangeable. And as far as bisobrolol is concerned, I plead ignorance. I have almost no experience with that drug.
2: This patient obviously gave us the gift of having a lot of afterload available for us to work with. But in those patients who have reduced blood pressures. How do you typically titrate the medication? Do you go by MAP versus the Solix? And is there a particular blood pressure cutoff you use for the ARNI dosing? And this feeds into the question of how quickly you feel comfortable injecting that dosing.
4: So just to give you 30 seconds of background to understand where I'm coming from. So I was a national country leader for Paradigm HF. So I've been around the drug for a long time. Number two, I was involved with the life study where we used succubitral valsartan and very severe heart failure. And I'm currently on the steering committee for Paraglide HF, which is basically the pioneer type study to use this drug in the hospital. So I'm quite comfortable with using the drug. I don't use the mean arterial pressure. I tend to use the systolic pressure. I generally will like a systolic pressure over a hundred. I've started many patients on Secubitrol Valsartan with blood pressures as low as 90, probably exceedingly rarely in the eighties. When I'm nervous about a patient and their tolerance, what I will usually do is give them Valsartan just to test the water, to see how they tolerate the Valsartan. And I'll usually give Valsartan at 20 to 40 milligrams. If they tank their pressure on one dose of Valsartan, I'm done. I don't even try it. If they tolerate the Valsartan, I will move ahead with the Cicubitril Valsartan. The other thing that I do, which is off label and I can't endorse it because you are not supposed to a tablet in half. Because in theory, you're never going to get a 50-50 split. You could get a 40-60 or whatever. Having said that, I have patients take a half dose of 24-26. I just saw a patient in my clinic yesterday who's been on that dose for over a year with a blood pressure of 93 systolic, who brought her EF up from 25 to 50 on Entresto and wall but she only tolerates a very low dose. There's quite a bit of data that would suggest that there's a gradient between the dose and the efficacy if you look at outcomes. But having said that, you're doing your patient a favor, even if they only tolerate a low dose. So that's basically the strategy that I take. Thank you, Dr. Starling. I think that was full of a lot of pearls,
1: including the use of sodium nitroprusside, how you titrate sacubal or sibutramol starting, and many other pearls, including the utilization of metoprolol in
4: the hospital and not dose reducing. Just remember there are blood pressure guidelines as far as starting from the package insert in Novartis on starting twenty four twenty six or forty nine fifty one. So if I see a patient on twenty bid of lisinopril. I'm probably going to start out at 49.51 and not at the lowest dose. And how fast can you titrate it? Well, as an inpatient and the patient is right there and being monitored, I would say quickly, probably if you give two or three doses and you feel there's blood pressure, I don't think you're going to harm the patient to uptitrate. Thanks Dr. Starling. I think,
1: Tiffany, you have another patient for us to round with, with Dr. Stralining. So, I will turn it back to you to tell us about this next patient.
2: Thank you. We're back in
3: clinic again, and we're actually going to see Mr. H.W. And I want to say a special thank you to Dr. Bhattacharya, one of our heart failure attendings, for this really interesting case. I will frame it by saying that he's had a long extensive history that we'll get through. We'll be remiss if we didn't mention his history, but the question really comes at the end. This is a 43-year-old male. He has a familial dilated cardiomyopathy associated with a TTN mutation, and he has a heart wear that was placed in February of 2018. He presents the clinic with low flow alarms, He's feeling pretty well despite these alarms. Denies any dizziness, syncope, no lower extremity edema or orthopnea. He does have chronic dyspnea on strenuous exertion, but this is stable from baseline. And he's had no episodes of bleeding and has not had any fevers or driveline issues. Diving into his hardware history, he received his hardware actually as his index admission when he presented with sky's HD cardiogenic shock that required. In Impella 5-5 and 5, dopamine, His EF at that time was noted to be 15% with a dilated left ventricle of 5.9 centimeters. And he had moderately reduced RV function and he underwent a heart wear at this time as destination therapy because in his past medical history at the time, he did have an alcohol use disorder. Now was in remission. He did have one hospitalization since his index admission for a GI bleed in 2019 was an EGD and colonoscopy that was unrevealing. In addition, he had paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. These are his current medications. So his GDMT includes carvedilol 12.5 twice a day, lisinopril 20 daily, Spironolactone 25 daily. He's also on digoxin and Torsemide as needed, in addition to magnesium and potassium supplementation and Warfarin for his paroxysmal aphid as well as his heart wear. That bite actually looks pretty good. We do note the low flow alarm when interrogated, but otherwise his exam is unremarkable. So this is his current echo, not his index admission, but his current one. As you can see, his LV is pretty robust. His EF was judged to be about 55%. Uh, percent. His RV is somewhat dilated, but contracting well, at least on the peristernal long and short shots that we have and there were no significant valvular abnormalities noted on subsequent images. So he does undergo a CT of the chest to look at why he may have these low flows. And the CT was notable for a uh, fluid pocket essentially within the driveline from the proximal segment. I think that mostly measured at 10 millimeters at the proximal end aspect of the conduit. They didn't note any gas, and then I have a still shot on the right kind of so that he did have this fluid collection. So they were considering a bad exchange for him. However, with the echo showing LV recovery and invasive hemodynamics in the OR and a RAMP study that corroborated uh, his return of uh, left ventricular function, is that was actually decommissioned at that time. And in the OR, they did note an outflow graft occlusion with the fluid collection, as we stated previously. So after his bad is decommissioned, they tried to start him on a low dose of ARNI, but he's unable to tolerate it due to hypotension. So they settle on discharging him on lisinopril 5 milligrams. They reduced his Carvedilol from 12.5 to 3.25 twice a day, and his bronolactone, torsmide, and dejoction were stopped. In clinic, he's noted to have NYHA class 2 symptoms, and his creatinine and his potassium are both at baseline. Creatinine was 1.1 and potassium was 4.3. Our question for Dr. Starling and the poll question is what would you do at his subsequent clinic visit so given that he has EF recovery, his FAD is now decommissioned. The first option is do not change his goal-directed medical therapy. Second option is to increase his beta blocker and ACE inhibitor at the same time. Third is to add spratolactone before touching his data blocker or ACE inhibitor. Fourth option is adding an SGL2 inhibitor before other medication changes. And the fifth option is to increase the ACE alone at first and then try to transition to ARNI again. And the sixth option is none of the above. You would do something different.
1: Thanks, Tiffany, for the case presentation. Teodora in the chat had asked what his current medications are. And Tiffany, I believe he's just on Carvedolol and Lisinopril currently from a guideline-directed medical therapy standpoint. Is that correct?
2: That's
3: right. He's on low doses of both. So he's on Carvedolol 3.125 twice a day and Lisinopril 5 milligram. The rest of it is the GDMT, including Spironolactone, had to
4: be stopped. Dr. Scarling, how would you approach this patient if he came to your clinic? Thank you. So couple comments before we get into that. So first I want to point out that in the case presentation, it was noted patient had a palpable pulse. So anytime you see an LVAD patient with a pulse, that should cause you to investigate, so to speak. Just remember when Dick Cheney had an LVAD, people said he was pulseless and that's because he had no heart. But for the usual LVAD patient that loses their pulse, you've got to think about how much is the native heart contributing and take your stethoscope. And if you hear normal heart sounds before you even do an echo, you can be sure the aortic valve is opening and closing. So I just wanted to mention that. And number two, low flow alarms. There's three or four things that you think about. You think about volume, you think about the right ventricle, you think about cannula issues, and you think about tamponade. So what was found in this particular case. So the decision was made to decommission the LVAT, which has its pluses and minuses, but that was the decision. You do need to put an occluder. Well, if the patient was in the operating room they tie it off, Sometimes percutaneously, we put amplex includers in the outflow graph to prevent retrograde flow. Probably wasn't an issue for this patient. So now the discussion is myocardial recovery in the setting of an LVAD. So, what is the evidence that we have? Not a lot. And this occurs at least in large registries under 5% of the time. It's most common in a woman with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy of relatively short duration. And last year in October in circulation, Cleveland Clinic was part of a study called Restage HF, which basically took patients like this, put them on medical therapy and went through a specific protocol for recovery. So, that recovery protocol included a beta blocker, specifically an angiotensin receptor blocker, not an ACE inhibitor, and it included a MRA. And the beta blocker that was preferentially used was a selective beta blocker, metoprolol. I personally am a believer in optimizing GDMT after an LVAD is put in and looking for recovery. If recovery occurs, what comes next? Optimization. In this patient, I would clearly think about adding an MRA. I would be thinking about getting the patient on a Sucupitrol Valsartan. Even though we don't have a lot of data on that, we think that's the best RAS inhibitor that we have based on non-LVAD data. And I was intrigued that number two on the poll was STLT2 inhibitors. That would be down the line for me because I'm still waiting to see any data that emerges on reverse remodeling effects of STLT2 inhibitors. I've seen a couple of abstracts with some signals coming in, but the main drugs that can facilitate reverse for modeling are beta blockers and sacubitril valsartan So Genuzzi published a paper, I believe in JAMA or JAMA cardiology. It was not a randomized trial, but it showed a mean increase in the ejection fraction of about 9%. So the best long-term drugs for this patient in my mind will be sacubitril valsartan a beta blocker and an MRA for sure. And In this particular setting, these medications are for the rest of the patient's life with their existing heart. We don't stop the medicines at any point in the future. You're probably familiar with the TRED-HF study that was done and published in Lancet that looked at non-ischemic cardiomyopathy recovery, randomized patients to withdrawal. And it's six months, about 40% of the patients had declined in ejection fraction. So the word that most follow is you never take the medicines away. Last comment has to durability after a recovery in an LVAD setting. And that is, in my mind, an unknown. There's gonna be some follow-up data presented and published from the Restage HF study, but our experience at the Cleveland Clinic has been mixed. We've certainly had some patients that had recovery that we explained at the LVAD that within weeks or a month or two, their heart failure syndrome returned. And some wound back up on LVADs again, or ECMO, et cetera. I have one patient in my clinic like this that's at her fifth year, that was on an LVAD. She was explanted. She got sick. She was on ECMO, listed for transplant. We were able to salvage her and get her through it. And she's five years out now on GDMT with a stable EF of 40%. I don't see it often, but we should always
1: strive for it. Thanks, Dr. Starling. That was a wonderful insight for everyone that's listening here. Tiffany, do you want to go through what happened next?
3: So at the first month, you can see his blood pressure all luckily remained um, above, with the systolic above uh, 90. First month, like we mentioned, he has nyh caused 2 symptoms that essentially persist uh, through his clinic visits. So they increased his carvedilol to 6.25 twice a day and continue his life in April. And about one and a half months later, they continue to increase his beta blocker to 12.5 twice a day and continue his lisinopril. And then 2.5 months later, they're able to start him on lactone and keep him on his beta blocker and ACE inhibitor. And then at six months, they start to increase his lisinopril to 10 milligrams a day. And then seven months, what I found very interesting is this was all done by our pharmacist over the phone and the patient coordination. They actually switched him with a three-day washout of his April to low-dose ARNI, and they up titrated him to medium dose after three days, which he tolerated quite well. They continued his beta blocker and his MRA. And then at 10 months, they got him to a gold dose of carvedilol 25 milligrams, and he's on mid-dose ARNI as well as 25 of ronolactone.
1: Thank you, Tiffany. Dr. Starling, this patient was titrated up just as you had mentioned before we had actually seen the course here on his spinal lactone as well as the beta blocker. I have a question not necessarily just for LVAD patients, but patients in general with heart failure recovered EF. Does the type of mutation matter to you or influence if the patient does have a genetic mutation which if you will titrate down medications or titrate up because of risk of whether it's sudden cardiac death with that mutation or risk
4: of recurrence of heart failure. I believe this patient had a titan mutation. Good question. And so if a patient has a mutation, whether it's known or a VUS, it bothers me. It does not affect how I deploy GDMT. And just in the a recent issue of Jack, There's a study out of Spain looking at mutations and dilated cardiomyopathy showing worse outcomes in, I think, 60-some percent of patients that have a known mutation or a VUS. I worry that a patient with a familial genetic type cardiomyopathy is going to do worse, but that's just my own problem, so to speak but I just deployed GDMT as I normally would. The only exception being in some cases, depending on what the diagnosis is and what the mutation is, there may be specific scenarios where an ICD would be indicated independent being below the typical EF threshold. But no, this mutation would not have affected my treatment of this particular patient.
1: Thanks, Dr. Starling. We have a question from Devesh Ray, who's also one of our Cardio Nerds Academy fellows. And his specific question was, in patients that have had a decommissioned in VAD, do they still need to be on
4: Warfarin? Yeah. Don't forget there's a cannula that's left behind in the left ventricle. So I personally would keep the patient on anticoagulation. And I imagine that there would be multiple different opinions on that. But having a piece of metal in my left ventricle, I'd want to be anecdotally. A couple other questions came in, and it, both of these questions are related
1: to how to titrate in the outpatient setting. And so, are there any factors that specifically influence how quickly you add guideline-directed therapy? And in patients with recovered EF. Have you used any PA pressure monitoring systems, such as the CardioMEMS device, to guide whether you'll titrate, guideline therapy?
4: Yeah, most of the time, we're titrating when we think we're treating half-ref, so to speak. So, this particular patient's a little unusual in that the patient was on GDMT, LVAD was decommissioned. And then there was this incentive to optimize the GDMT. There's a lot of chatter about this now. I don't think you need to worry too much about the ejection fraction because most of the medicines that we use to affect the myocardium now, we don't have any restrictions based on ejection fraction. As far as cardiomems and titration, I think most of the time cardiomems revolves around high pa pressures which is what they measure and making a judgment regarding a diuretic versus a vasodilator and if you look at the original study that was done for the approval of cardiomems a lot of the titration was with vasodilator therapy so i i don't think i need cardiomems numbers most of the time to uptitrate a patient. I'm gonna base that upon the physical exam and the vital signs, basically. And you know, if you told me the patient's PA systolic was 28 and they walked into my office and their systolic pressure was 140, I'm probably gonna uptitrate their succubitral valsartan, independent of what that PA systolic pressure is. Thanks, Dr. Starling. So, Tiffany, you want to ask our final question?
3: Thank you. So, I know you had mentioned CRED HF already and continuing GDMT in this recovered EF population. I've seen a few times uh, as a fellow people who come in for their first time of atrial fibrillation, their EF drops with the AFib, they get cardioverted, and then they restore normal sinus rhythm and their EF recovers. Would you still recommend for arrhythmias that are reversible, continuing or titrating GDMT?
4: So great question. And talk to any of my former or current clinic fellows, Dr. Bot, Dr. Elgevin, Dr. Brooksbank. My clinic is loaded with patients with AFib and low EFs that have normal ejection fractions now. And part of the problem is It's the chicken or the egg discussion that what came first, AFib, then LV dysfunction or LV dysfunction, and then AFib. Most of the time, probably with few exceptions, I will continue uh, GDMT and somebody that have a low ejection fraction plus minus dilatation of their left ventricle, where we focused on the combination of GDMT and sinus rhythm. Once in a while, a patient will improve quite a bit. And the same argument or discussion applies to a patient with a left bundle that, with rare exception, and Wilfred Mullins actually published a paper about withdrawing GDMT in a subset of patients with left bundle and CRT that recovered their ejection fraction. I'm not overly enthusiastic about that concept myself, so I will tend to continue both in AFib as well as in left bundle branch block, even with full recovery.
3: Thank you so much.
4: I
1: just want to thank Dr. Tiffany Dong for putting these cases together. It takes a lot of effort to go through these cases and present it in this format. And thank you, especially to Dr. Starling for your insight, your expertise. Thank you again, everyone joining, and we will see you next time. <whistles>